0: This is the GP Soccer Podcast with your host Giovanni Piccini. giovanni Pacini here your host of the gp soccer podcast uh, buongiorno a tutti as we say in italian good day to everyone uh all of my wonderful listeners from uh across the united states north america and heck uh, around the world as well i guess i have to learn uh, good morning or good afternoon or good evening in a variety of languages i have to work on that one um but welcome to the gp soccer podcast great to be with you once again right out of the gate i want to start with some exciting news um Particularly, you know, exciting news for for those of us in the soccer community here in the Boston area, but uh, it does uh, expand in terms of the news um, with women's soccer in general, and that is women's soccer, women's professional soccer, is coming back to Boston. Um, the NWSL um, has designated Boston as a uh, the, the, a new franchise uh, that will come back in, into the league, and uh, it's very exciting. Uh, it's been awarded, obviously, an, an expansion franchise, and it's a, a local ownership group, um, and uh, they're set, by all accounts, to spend uh, hundred million, hundred million dollars, to get into what uh, you know is is a you know is a is a crowded market here in the Boston area. I mean, this is a major we're a major sports market. The Bruins, the Celtics, the Red Sox, the Patriots, the Revolution. Uh, And, and, you know, now we have women's professional soccer as well, as well as as, uh, women's professional football and women's professional hockey, which I'll touch upon later as well. Um, This is pretty exciting stuff. Uh, You know, uh, Jennifer Epstein, who's one of the uh, one of the uh, investors, a quote, the landscape has really changed dramatically in the last five years. Uh, She's a controlling partner of the Boston Unity Soccer Partners. The uh, placeholder name for the ownership group um, and they paid 53 million dollars in an expansion fee, fee to the league uh, and, and again we'll invest about that amount again getting to 100 million dollars uh, mostly in the refurb- refurbishing of a white stadium which is a uh, in a separate training facility and as well as all the operating co- uh, costs she went on to say there's a lot of attention to women's sports right now a global rise in fandom uh, in not just women's sports but in particularly around women's soccer it's a great moment in time there's a lot of momentum in the league she went on to say i i'd like to think that it's the beginning of the modern era of women's sports now we we see that don't we uh in, in the aftermath of the women's world cup that set uh, att- amazing attendance records amazing viewership records uh, the NWSL itself is enjoying a great deal of popularity, and at this stage of 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 the year of of, the, uh, of of this broadcast being put together, there are about three or four weeks left in the season, and the attendance in the league in the NWSL has already surpassed one million people, which is a league record, an absolute league record, um, and they have a, a a media rights deal that's expiring soon, and this uh, you know these renegotiations and the new package could be something my goodness, record-breaking. Now, back here in Boston, uh, where are they going to play? Well, White Stadium appears to be the place uh, that we're going to be seeing uh, women's professional soccer, and that's in the Franklin Park area. Uh, And uh, Epstein, once again, uh, uh, thanked uh, league commissioner Jessica Berman for her support throughout this process. And believing in Boston, Uh, she is the daughter of Celtics co-owner Robert Epstein. The other managing partners are Anna Palmer, a general partner at Flybridge Capital. Stephanie Connaughton, an angel investor, advisor, and mentor with early-stage startups. Amy Kwan Danoff, a co-founder and chief financial officer of the Women's Foundation of Boston. Now, this particular franchise is about 90% of the group's invested capital is from women and 40% from investors of color. This is terrific. This is, you know, we talk about this word diversity so often. This screams of diversity and it's a wonderful wonderful part of this now uh, emerging story that being professional soccer women's soccer coming back to boston i actually went on to talk about there's an excitement around soccer in the city that's always been there um and uh, the upcoming opportunities to host the men's world cup of 2026 dovetailing with the timelines here i think the impact of professional women's sports team will be huge and this is from mayor michelle Wu, by the way michelle Wu. Now getting back to White Stadium uh to to be kind here ladies and gentlemen uh White Stadium is uh, it's a wreck uh it, it's a wreck it's it's in a dilapidated state uh and and as noted they're they're prepared uh to spend a a great deal of, of money uh in, into the stadium um there's talk about the uh the west grandstand being uh, reno, uh renovated quote unquote the grove development um and it will have roofs over the grandstand uh, the city of City of Boston is expected to be responsible for the east grandstand and constructing new offices for Boston public school uh, athletics, um, as well as a a, a, a a health and fitness facility as well. Uh, designs for the roof, which may feature solar panels. This is great as well. We have diversity, we have green energy, we have a green mindset. It's terrific as well. Now on, on soccer game days, uh, the investment group hopes to uh, add retractable retractable seating on the north end of the stadium, which would increase capacity to eleven thousand. Now, when there's no soccer, uh, those seats uh, front and the front rows of each grandstand could be retracted to allow for a refurbished running track uh, expanded to eight lanes. The playing surface for soccer and football fields would be natural grass with a new irrigation system. The grove area is intended to provide a festival-like space for food and beverages and hang out and play zone hangout uh, and play on game day. So a lot of stuff happening here. Uh, a lot of stuff happening here. They're not scheduled to, to kick off the first official ball for another two to three years. It's going to take that long, um, you know, to, to put all of these pieces of the puzzle together, uh, to get women's professional soccer back on the, uh, back on, literally on the field. Now I noted uh, as well, um, you know, this is the third professional women's sports team in Boston. Uh, we've got a franchise, uh, in the new, uh, professional Women's Hockey League that begins play in January. Uh, and that particular team is owned by the PWHL. The Boston Renegades are five-time defending champions of the Women's Football Alliance, and the New England is represented in the WNBA, as we know, by the Connecticut Sun, who play down in Uncasville, Connecticut. Uh, women's sports, professional sports, is here. They're vibrant. They're ex- they're exciting, uh, and this is great uh, for for the city of Boston. This is great for New England. This is great, not just for for women's players or, or or young ladies or girls. This is just good for soccer in general. You know, when we talk about you know we have the New England Revolution, and now we're going to have women's professional soccer, and a name has yet to be announced. Obviously, this isn't guy soccer and girl soccer. You know, the guys go over to we let's we'll go watch the the, the Revs play down at Gillette Stadium, and not girl soccer. We're going to go to White Stadium and and watch them play. This is soccer in general this is high level soccer this is professional sports right here uh, in our, in our own community and it's a wonderful opportunity to expand your opportunity to go out and see high level professional sports not men not women professional sports um, and let's not forget as well uh you know f- for the expense the cost you know it's still a, it's still a a, a you know a, an inexpensive uh You know, inexpensive investment, if you will, if you're someone going to a game or you want to bring a family, you know, going to a Revs game is a heck of a lot cheaper than maybe go to a Bees game or a Celtics game, the Patriots, Red Sox. And although prices have not been set for the Women's Professional League yet, but I I would suspect that uh, I could be safe to say it now that it's probably going to be a more affordable investment in terms of taking, you know, someone or a family to see professional sports. Um, This is going to be good for the city. Um, Let's not forget the economic impact that comes with all of this, putting people to work. The uh, reconstruction or, um, you know, the the improvement of White Stadium in and of itself is going to, you know, it's going to put people to work. The infrastructure that goes along with these types of things puts people to work. You're going to see the advent of maybe bars, restaurants, hotels uh, that kind of go along with this type of thing. I know over on the other side of the city, uh, you know, Wynn has... uh, has secured some space there that by all accounts, by all rumors, the revs will put their stadium there. So the economic impact is a good thing. And then the long term economic impact is uh, you know, every time you build something and you you create something and you put people to work, the long term economic impact is very, very good. This is all good news. This is all good news. And heck, we need some good news here in Boston, don't we? The Patriots are 0-2. And the Red Sox are in last place. Uh, we're waiting for the Bruins and the Celtics to get ready for their preseasons this winter, and uh, hopefully they they fare better than they did the the last couple of years. But uh, you know, right now we've got um, you know the Bruins and the Red Sox. I mean, the uh, the Celtics, uh, the the, the uh, Red Sox, and the Pages. And let's not forget our own New England Revolution, which I will talk about uh, in the uh, soccer news and analysis. As we all know, they are mired, mired in controversy. Uh, with bruce arena being let, uh, resigning and all the things that are going on with that that's just a teaser i'll discuss that in more detail uh, when we get into soccer news and analysis with yours truly so there you go i want to open on a high note open on an exciting note that being women's professional soccer officially coming back to the city of boston Giovanni Pagini here, your host of the GP Soccer Podcast. Sit back and relax. We've got a a great show here today. As you know, conversation with the coaches coming up, Coach's Corner, um, Soccer News and Analysis, uh, the EPL and your report from the great Rob Ellis. Sit back, relax, enjoy the GP Soccer Podcast. We've got a commercial coming up. Don't you dare go anywhere. We'll catch you on the other side. Getting the most out of your advertising dollar is essential to any good business. Knowing that you're getting a good return on your advertising investment certainly makes a positive impact on your bottom line. Advertising on the GP Soccer Podcast is one of those sound advertising decisions. With a global audience of thousands of listeners, high-profile interview guests, and now into its ninth season, the GP Soccer Podcast has become a noted must-listen in the very crowded soccer podcast world. Host Giovanni Piccini is a professional voiceover artist and will work with each and every client to ensure that the ad reflects the client's needs and wants. Each advertisement is professionally recorded and edited by Giovanni Puccini himself and is promoted on not only the show, but throughout all of the GP Soccer Podcast's social media networks. Contact the GP Soccer Podcast at GP4Soccer, and that's the number 4, at yahoo.com to learn more. The GP Soccer Podcast. Well, you will always get a good return on your investment dollar.
1: Hi, everybody. This is Bob Mues, father of Christy and Sam Mewis of the United States Women's National Soccer Team. You're listening to the GP Soccer Podcast with your host, Giovanni Pacini.
0: And welcome to the GP Soccer Podcast, Conversation with the Coach. And welcome to Conversation with the Coach here in the GP Soccer Podcast, uh, having a, a boatload of fun here with a new format um, here, uh, here in the GP Soccer Podcast. And uh, we got a great guest today in this segment, conversation with the coach, uh, a returning guest, a great friend of the of the uh, of the show. Uh, that's Don Norton. And by way of introduction, first and foremost, uh, Don is the twenty twenty two Bob McNulty New Jersey Youth Soccer Coach of the Year, which is a fantastic accolade. Um, and this fall, Don will enter his tenth season as the men's assistant coach at Rutgers Camden University. Uh, his first season at Rutgers, the team went undefeated. the national championship match in texas before losing in overtime to messiah two to one don has been a men's college coach for the past 30 years having also coached at haverford and has coached numerous all-american all-region all-conference all-academic players and he has been to two ncaa division three final fours don is a holder of the u.s soccer a license united soccer coaches premier diploma the uh, irish faa license uefa a license scottish faa license United's uh, U.S. Soccer National Youth Soccer. Uh, Don has also been a state coaching school director for New Jersey and Eastern PA, Eastern PA Youth Soccer Associations, and a U.S. Soccer grassroots instructor. And it's great to have Don on today because our topic today with Conversation with the Coach has to do with coaching education, coaching licensure. So, Don Norton, my, my friend, welcome to the GP Soccer Podcast Conversation with the Coach. Well, thank you very much, and most honored to, uh, to be back again. Thank you so much. My pleasure. So, listen, let, let's uh, share with uh, have you share with my audience, uh, Rutgers Camden University. You know where is it? Uh, I, I mentioned a little bit there in your bio some of the success that you've had, but kind of broaden uh, the description, if you will, about um, you know coaching at uh, Rutgers Camden.
1: Okay, Rutgers Camden University. We are a Division three school. We play in the New Jersey Athletic Conference, so we play against all the other uh, you know state schools within uh, uh, New Jersey. Um, we obviously start like most division three schools in late August and, uh, we play our conference schedule, then our conference tournament. And if we do well there, we hopefully go back to the NCAA tournament. Uh, most of the boys on our team tend to be from the, uh, tri-state area from, uh, New Jersey, uh, Delaware, Pennsylvania. Although recently we've had some players from, uh, North Carolina, but for the most part, they tend to be there. And when you graduate, you get a Rutgers University degree, which is outstanding. And our campus is right on the waterfront there, underneath the bridge. And we play on an astroturf field underneath the bridge. And, um, yeah, we have Division three players. And a lot of the boys on the team will continue to play after Rutgers University. They don't necessarily play professionally, but they'll play in amateur leagues. But for them, uh, playing at Rutgers University means uh, a chance to hopefully compete for a Division three national uh, championship.
0: Fantastic, and uh, if you're in the New Jersey area, make sure you you you, uh, take some time to to check out uh, Rutgers Camden. So let me emphasize again, it's great having you on because of your your commitment to coaching coach development. Let me let me start the conversation, Don, with a rather broad but important question. Share with my audience your thoughts, and maybe even what was your driving force for uh, force regarding your own pursuit of coaching licensure, your own pursuit. Uh, of continual development, you know, why is that so important to 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 uh, to take that path? Whether you're, whether you're a grassroots, you know, uh, grassroots coach, you're coaching in your town team, a bunch of u six kids, or you're coaching club, high school, college, professional, why why is it so important to follow a track uh, in coach education and development?
1: Oh, I think it. I think it's huge uh, for me. It, it's been a path that's really led me. Hopefully, even at my old fart age now to be a much better uh, coach. Uh, When I first uh, started the, the, you know, the courses, I was, uh, I was just always inspired by my instructors. They were so supportive. And uh, for me, it was obviously learning more about the game, interacting with people who shared my passion for the game. And the fact that I could, uh, you know, use what I learned with my coaching licenses with the players, with the teams that I had. And uh, for me, I think uh, coaching education is just an invaluable way to learn and grow. The great thing about soccer is you can learn something new every day. And sometimes you just need to hear it uh, from a coaching school instructor just to reinforce what you already know or something obviously you haven't thought of in that particular fashion. And obviously the people that you're around, like I said, your classmates, your instructors, they all share that same passion for the game. And it's nice to have a network of people that you can lean upon and, and speak to. Uh, You know, when you're not in a coaching license course or when you're training your teams.
0: You know, Don, the analogy that I quite often use formally or informally, but I use it particularly when I'm delivering a coaching education course, is that the, the field is a classroom. The players are students. The coach is a teacher. And all of the same things that 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 go into creating a, a dynamic classroom and in the academic sense are the very same things that must manifest themselves to create a wonderful teaching learning environment on the soccer field. And and the cornerstone of that, at least in my own opinion, is that the coach become certified, qualified. Uh, to teach the game at whatever level they happen to be uh, coaching at and uh, particular, uh, you know, uh, playing ability of, of the team, just like any good teacher, any good teacher. Um, what are your thoughts on, on that particular an- analogy? Do you, do you think that analogy, the school, you know, academic to the athletic, does that, you think that would resonate or does it resonate with with Joe Average, soccer coach, let's say?
1: Uh, yeah, oh, absolutely, because I think if you go in any classroom, the teachers don't necessarily just say, this is the answer. They, they want you to think about it. And on the soccer field, you want to engage your players with guided questions so that you really think, under, hopefully you can see that they understand kind of what the, 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 you're trying to discuss. The point of your, your session is right there. Um, we have a saying in New Jersey Youth Soccer in our coaching school from uh, Benjamin Franklin. It's kind of our motto. That is, uh, tell me and I will forget. Show me and I may remember. But if you involve me, I will learn. And I think that's no different in the classroom than it is on the um, the soccer field. And young boys and young girls, they don't want to be lectured to. They want to get out there. They want to get on that soccer ball. You can ask them guided questions. You can get some great feedback from your players. But if you just have them standing around and just lecturing to them, you put them to sleep in a classroom. You put them to sleep on a soccer field.
0: As you very well know, I'm a, a huge proponent and had been advocating for quite some time, now, now more than ever, uh, the idea of coaching with a street soccer mentality. Um, and you touched upon a couple of things that are very, very important in, in that approach, i.e. putting kids in, in playing situations that, that, is, that is soccer, that when somebody walks by, they, hey, that looks like they're playing soccer. But then having the capacity as, as the coach, as the teacher, to recognize some of the things that aren't going well, and then bringing them in and asking the, like, as you noted, the guided questions and then letting them go back out again and to see if they took that, you know, the information that, that, that they that they brought forth to the discussion to see if they could they could pro- uh, solve the problems. Do you think that could be, a, that's a big challenge for a lot of, oh, heck, I'll say it, you know, a lot of grassroots coaches who just like to joystick. Or, and it's sometimes even in, you know, it's the, they have the best of intentions. They want to help Johnny. They want to help Janie. They want to give them all the answers. But it's really counterintuitive uh, or counterproductive, if you will. What are your thoughts on on that idea of, of, of coaching with the street soccer mentality, using guided questions, using the Socratic method to help kids solve problems on the soccer field?
1: No, I, I so agree. Uh, the, the problem is, is that some, so many coaches coach for their parents because they know the parents are watching them. And it's like, gee, I should tell little Johnny, little Susan, you know, I'm out here, I got my whistle, I have my Adidas gear on, I should give them the answers. But you really want the kids, they're the ones who want you want them, obviously, to give you the answers uh, to what you're doing out there. And that's why with our U.S. soccer, with the grassroots, uh, with the new that they have, basically they've just bro- broken it down to three little phases. And uh, in the f- first and third phase are just basically playing the game. Get the game, as we say in New Jersey and all over the world, is the great teacher. And uh, you don't need a lot of bells and whistles. You don't need a thousand cones out there. Uh, you just put the players in an organized situation and let them figure some stuff out. But it's so hard not to hover around your players for young coaches and say, I, I'm going to give you the answer. Just like a parent in theory should not be doing the homework for their child. You wouldn't, you don't want to give your players the answer because ultimately when they get older, they've got to solve those problems on their own. If you've constantly given them the answers and they can't think on their own, it becomes difficult.
0: Staying on That topic or this this part of our conversation, share with my audience um, methods by which a coach and any and I'm being very arbitrary here any kind of activity where they can change the dynamics, they can change the ecosystem. I guess what I'm alluding to, like changing shapes, you know, of of a playing space, bigger, smaller, that type of thing. Share with my audience some of the things that the coaches can do to change the, the 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 activity environment to offer different challenges to the players who are involved
1: yeah the first thing obviously you have to read the situation if it's too easy for the the players, then obviously you want to make it more challenging so that, that challenging slash game like. so obviously as a coach, you can change the cones in other words, the dimensions it's it's a field too big you can make it smaller so so the players have to think quicker they have less time on the ball. Uh, are your teams evenly balanced? Uh, do you know I, I probably when I'm training my youth team on the side, I don't want to have my three quote best strikers with on the same squad is the team balanced. Um, you, you can, you can change so many variables on a soccer field. You can give counter goals to a team. If the team isn't, uh, if, if it's not balanced, you can give the team that's quote weaker, two little small goals as counter counterweights, counter goals, uh, you know, to attack. So there's a lot of things you can do as a coach to make it more challenging for your players. Cause in the, the day, you don't want it too easy out there. Um, again, Within the, within the uh, U.S. soccer, the grassroots instructor, that's one of the key things that we emphasize is, it is it challenging for the players? Is it game-like? Again, you can change the dimensions. You can change the personnel. Uh, you can change the formation just to make it uh, so that it's challenging uh, for the players. My analogy, again, because you used the, street, the word street soccer, is no different than street basketball. If you and I were at a park and we were playing uh, you know, 5v5 pickup, and my team was up 50 to nothing, He'd probably say hey move these two guys to this team so the game is even
0: yeah it's, you're absolutely spot on but it's amazing when you try to do that in a training environment you know uh how there's always some some kind of pushback kids will do things intrinsically <laughs> they will do it organically um but it's always interesting that when you, you do it in a game you know in a training environment there's a little always a little bit of pushback but kids are kids are kids you before i hit the record button. You and I were talking at length about, uh, you know, technology finding its way, not only in, you know, our global landscape, but in the, in the landscape of soccer. and you and I talked a little bit about how it affected recruiting. Um, you know, in a lot of the research that I have done, uh, you know, as a coach educator, um, I, I've come across this idea uh, or this notion uh, of what we call, or what I'm referring to as laptop coaches. And, and what does that mean? It means that we have coaches who are so connected to modern technology that, that, that their ability to, to, to intrinsically identify an issue or, more importantly, teach something that they've seen from the gut, and that's the important part, from the gut, is compromised. Technology has is found its way everywhere, and it's a wonderful thing, but it's also going to be a terrible thing. What are your thoughts on the idea of, of laptop coaches or coaches who have become so connected, literally and figuratively, to, you know, to technology that has compromised their ability to, to trust their eyes and their ears and then teach accordingly. What are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I do think there's a lot of coaches out there who who quote, they could give you the, the sessions of Barcelona or Manchester United, but that's really not appropriate with a U-12 boys team from here, there, or anywhere, or depending on the, the particular age group. I really think that you have to get your hands dirty and get out there among your players and make mistakes throughout the years to really become a better coach over time and that y- you just can't rely on that type of technology to make you a better coach now having said that I get now in the US soccer when I when you and I took the courses years ago it was paper you turned in you see now it's all on laptops and you know we have little Xs and Os and the graphics look great we all get that that's fine but in the day can you get on a soccer field and identify a problem and change it in a way that's beneficial to the players, and can you do it quickly and efficiently so that, this, so that the spotlight is not on you, so the, the flow of the game continues out there. But again, no, I agree there's too many coaches out there who, who can just download stuff, and it looks great, but it's not appropriate for the age group of, of, the, of the players that they have out there.
0: And, and I guess uh, one of the best ways to develop that skill is taking a coaching education course where you've got folks who are experienced and knowledgeable um, and, and can provide you the, the knowledge to, to, to be able to teach the game that way. Um, you know, you've got the extra set of professional eyes, if you will. Let's, let, what, do you, what do you say, Don? And this is an age old question. You and I have both heard hear this as, as coach developers, coach educators. What do you say to the volunteer coach? He says, you know, I, I'm just doing this because uh, they needed a coach and uh, or I'm just doing this because, you know, my kids want to play. And well, I'm just going to do it for the season. And, and in essence, what they're saying is I don't need to take a coaching education course. I don't need to take, you know, that course they're offering for two hours on a Friday. Um, I'm just doing it just because. What do you say to that individual? What do you say to those coaches who, who have that kind of mindset?
1: Yeah, no, that's that's the, such a difficult question, because within most clubs, if they don't do it, who does it? So then there, there is literally, in a sense, no coach. For me, I think that most clubs, I mean, if I had my magic wand, uh, I could, you know, wave it all over the, this country on the various clubs. I would have them somehow get hire a director of coaching who could work with all of the various coaches, a director of coaching who does not have a team that he or she coaches within that club, and every night is out there in the soccer club working as best he or she can with those particular coaches, giving them suggestions. Giving them positive feedback and and working with them so that they can take those courses. A lot of coaches who take those courses, they're frustrated because they don't have success. But if they had someone to work with them and to, and to mentor and guide them, I think they would be much better going down the road. Having said all that, U.S. Soccer uh, is much better nowadays with mentoring the, the the coaches, the candidates that are in their courses. It used to be. When I took the courses, you know, you just you did your sessions and then you waited six months in the mail. And if you got a big envelope, you passed the course. If you got a letter, you didn't. And now there's constant feedback from the uh, instructors to the people, in a sense, mentoring them so they don't become discouraged. So you keep them on the track, moving down the coaching license pathway.
0: And you it's such an important word. I'm so glad you brought up that as the word mentor or having that having that person who is a mentor. Um, and I, I go back to the the opening part of my that question to the person who, you know, is just doing it because, heck, you know, find a mentor, someone who's you know got some experience, got some knowledge, has some licensure, um, maybe has a little bit of expertise on how to teach, uh, you know, t- t- teach. Period. Uh, my goodness, when you have that person, and I'm and you know this as well as I do, when you have that person, my goodness, it makes your job so much easier, so much easier. Uh, when you get back up, when you, when you get back out on, onto the field. Um, and then, you know, when you, when you're taking a, a coaching education course, you, you then become empowered. You have knowledge, you know, stuff, you know, stuff, and it makes teaching the game that much easier. It certainly, as you very well know, makes for a far more enjoyable environment for the kids who then want to come back. Who no, I, 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 back. I, Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. And like I said, you, you learn more about, teaching the game and one thing so in this country and i think in the world is we often assume because you were a quote a great player that you somehow know how to teach and i've always found within my coaching license courses whether it's in scotland ireland and all the courses i took in this country some of my best instructors really were they really weren't very good players at all but they were just outstanding at communicating and they really broke down the game and i think sometimes uh, they had it a chip on their shoulder because they, they knew they were you know, not not respected as players, but they knew they had to work a little bit harder to stay in the game. And that they, uh, as coaches really did a fantastic uh, job teaching it. I mean, we look at the, some of the best coaches in the world right now, um, you know, whether it's Jose Mourinho, he was obviously wasn't a great player or, you know, Juergen Klopp or some of the greatest players, you know, Arsene Wenger. But, they're able to you know, impart that knowledge and
0: teach it uh, to their players. You know, we talked about U.S. soccer and you know, licensure. You know, one of the things that kind of eats away at me a, a little bit, um, and I'm kind of paraphrasing here, if you have five years of professional or national team planning experience, uh, that, that will allow a person to apply for a waiver to, to get into or enter the uh, U.S. soccer B licensure with no prior coaching experience and and that kind of goes to your point about just because you might have played at a high level doesn't mean you can teach at any level Uh, i i know and i'm not going to name names throughout the course of my many years as a coach educator i have had that level of player you know in in the courses of which i was an instructor and they were terrific players and they're awesome you know in a course you know playing and playing in the sessions and that type of thing but when they have to be in the spotlight so to speak to do you know a training session um, they're lost. They're lost. Um, no,
1: I, I, I agree. I actually had a player when I was in Scotland in my, when I was doing my uh, licenses over there, that we were like little pods of 12, you know, 12, quote, 12 candidates. And one of the guys in my class was a Scottish national team player. And he had played in uh, Mexico city in front of 120,000 uh, people. He played all over the world for the Scottish national team. He was scared he was sweating doing a, a coaching session in front of the 11 of us for his, you know, his session, because public speaking wasn't his, you know, he just, he just shuddered at it. You got here. He played in front of 120,000 players as a player was phenomenal, but it's a, it's a big difference between putting that hat on as a coach versus being a player. But we tend to assume in this country, because you were a great basketball player, you will become a great coach or vice versa or, be, or soccer, whatever sport. And that often not the case, is that uh, it, it does not translate over.
0: Teaching and doing are two uh, very distinctly different things. Um, let's end this uh, segment uh, of conversation with the coach, Don, with what advice would you give, you know, any coach, any coach, uh, relative to the importance of, of, of not just taking coaching education licenses, because we kind of touched upon that, but but continue on a, on a journey of 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 awareness and a, and a journey on, um, you know, keeping an open mind and learning new things. What what advice would you give coaches out there?
1: Well, first of all, depending on where you live, is there a coach or a club team or whatever that you could go and, in a sense, watch and make a friend, make friends with that coach or or just ask questions? I, I've always found that just people in the soccer world are very open, and the coaches are very kind to each other. We're sharing information. I, um, a couple of years ago, when uh, where I live here in Southern New Jersey, I would go over with a Philadelphia Union and watch John Hackworth, who was the coach at the time. And I would literally sit on the end of his practice bench and, you know, I could touch the players on their water breaks, and just sit there. And he was the kindest person on the planet and he would, I would just talk to me in between little breaks and I would ask him questions. And so whenever you can have an opportunity to uh, watch someone else coach or uh, do it, I think it's, it's, it's invaluable. And people within our soccer orbit are, tend to be very kind people and share their knowledge uh, to others.
0: Amen, my friend. Amen. Well, our guest today on Conversation with the Coach here in the GP Soccer Podcast has been Don Norton, who's entering his 10th season as the assistant coach at uh, Rutgers-Camden University. Uh, well, Don, I I want to thank you for taking the time being on the show, and I, and I wish you and the boys the very best of luck uh, this fall. Well, thank you very much, my good friend. It's, it's always great to speak with you. I look forward to us doing it again. Again, this has been Conversation with the Coach. I'm Giovanni Pacini. This is the GP Soccer Podcast. We're going to break for a commercial. We'll catch you on the other side. In the Soccer Coaches Toolkit, those who teach the game will find a wealth of coaching activities to improve, stimulate, and provide enjoyment for players of all ages and abilities. The UEFA B licensed Coach and Chelsea FC Player Development Center Head Coach Rob Ellis has drawn on more than 20 years of soccer coaching and physical education teaching experience to provide only those activities he has successfully used time and time again to engage and inspire his players. Each activity is graded from beginner to advanced, and they foster fresh and exciting ideas to coach the main techniques and tactics of soccer. The 252 coaching activities included in the Soccer Coaches Toolkit are also accompanied by an easy-to-understand description and diagram. The activities require only basic coaching equipment and can be adapted to challenge players of varying ability levels and needs. Soccer coaches at all levels of the game can use the activities to create one-off sessions for their players or use the activities to deliver regular sessions as part of a competitive training program. It is an ideal resource for both grassroots and elite youth coaches and will enhance both the players' and teams' development. The book is on sale worldwide and has scored a massive hit with professional coaches and players alike. Former Tottenham Hotspur youth coach John Rowan described the Soccer Coaches Toolkit as an astounding book. I consider it the Bible of soccer coaching. Head of football methodology at Monaco said of the Soccer Coaches Toolkit, it is a very useful book for coaches to widen their session database and provide variety in their coaching. Head of soccer development at Christ College Secondary School in London, Daniel Nielsen called the Soccer Coaches Toolkit a truly comprehensive library of drills and sessions for the whole spectrum of soccer techniques and tactics. In addition, the book has already been purchased and endorsed by former Wolverhampton Wanderers and Sunderland defender Jody Craddock, as well as ex-Leicester City striker Trevor Benjamin and Sutton United defender Joe Kizzy. The Soccer Coach's Toolkit is the ticket to a lifetime of soccer coaching ideas, a must-book to include in your soccer coaching library.
1: Listening to the GP Soccer Podcast with host Giovanni
0: Pacini. And welcome to the GP Soccer Podcast, Coach's Corner, where you'll find great tips and advice on how to teach the great game of soccer. Giovanni Pacini here, host of the GP Soccer Podcast here on Coach's Corner. Today's topic is formations and systems. Now, I'm going to try to cram here uh, in this brief five to six-minute segment something that, um, well, if you take a coaching education course, um, particularly those uh, courses that uh, deal with advanced players, you'd spend a week, if not more, um, discussing, researching, learning about formations and systems. But uh, let me offer you some information, and this is all uh, uh, relative to advanced players. You're playing uh, 11-a-side soccer. So let's start with formations. What does that mean? Well, formations... Uh, is where the players essentially start the game. So, for example, if you go to a match and you're sitting in the stands before the whistle is blown, you can discernibly see, well, this this side here is in a 1-4-4-2, four, four, and that side over there is in maybe a 1-4-2-3-1. But after the whistle is blown, you know as well as I do that the game being as fluid as it is, there, there, are, there are there are players that are moving about all over the field. And the idea here is, is the formation kind of maintains a shape now, each one of these players in the formation has a certain uh, certain job description, what we call a function. And every one of your players, when they step on the field, should know what their function is in the formation of which you decide to play. So, for example, we'll go through them, you know, each of the 11 players. If you're the goalkeeper, well, this one's pretty simple. Uh, you know, keep the ball out of the back of the net is probably first and foremost. But this, the goalkeeper is, is technically proficient. Um, they, they have good passing abilities. They have strong distribution, and typically they're they're a pretty good athlete. That's kind of a basic function, a basic description of the goalkeeper. Your number two and your number three, are the, who are the outside backs, right and left, respectively, they have ability to play a great long ball, a great long service, and they're strong defenders one versus one. Typically, they're the ones that are facing the opposing teams outside, outside midfield or maybe an opposing outside overlapping back. These players, the two and three, are very very fast, they're speedy players, and they're able to cover cover a lot of ground on the flanks, and they have very solid technical passing abilities, because in the modern game, we see a great deal of play coming out of the back. The numbers four and five, they're the center backs, left and right, respectively. Uh, these are very consistent players who are organizers, are leaders. Typically, they're tall and strong, and they, and they have the ability to cover cover ground, especially laterally and vertically. They're technically very, very strong defensively. They're strong tacklers, and they're very good in the air. I I used to call these players the Twin Towers uh, because their job was to protect that that important space in front of the goalkeeper. Your number six, typically called a defensive midfielder, has a high work rate. They have the ability to keep the ball. They have great vision and technical passing ability. They're tactically astute, maybe strong in the air, and once again, a a defensive skill. They're a strong tackler. The number eight player, the central midfield player, they have an endless work rate. They're kind of a box-to-box type of player. They have great speed and endurance. They have good leadership, good organization. Through their play, they're good playmakers, good in the air, Um, maybe typically have good long-range finishing ability, uh, and uh, they have the ability to provide defensive pressure as well. Your seven and 11, these are the wide players, your wingers right and left respectively. Very fit, high work rates, ability to make long runs and recover, you know, stop and think if they're a wide player, they they can typically go end line to end line oftentimes. They're strong one versus one attacking ability because once again, they're on the wide uh, wide areas and they're facing the respective wide midfielder and, and an outside back. They have good flank service that can put a ball into the box, uh, a dangerous ball for someone to run onto and get a potential finish on goal, and they're very good at long range shooting. Your number 10, typically referred to as your attacking center midfielder. They have great finishing ability, clinical passing in the final third. They're the ones that can really hold the ball and then bang, push that ball through to maybe a number nine or push the ball throughout wide for a 7-11 to run onto. Uh, they, have great opp- they have great skills in terms of creating scoring opportunities. Very good one-on-one in the final third. And they can make play predictable, putting pressure on the defense. Your number nine, your forward, your striker, well, you know, it's pretty simple. Your your job is to score goals. Uh, they have the ability to play with their back to goal. They're creative. They're technical. Um, they're strong. They're tough. And they play with a degree of attacking arrogance that says, give me the ball. I can score goals. So that, ladies and gentlemen, in a nutshell, is your basic job descriptions of, your, of the players in a formation. Now, you as the coach can nuance these, these job descriptions or functions given the player's strengths and weaknesses. I'll give you an example. I had a young man that immediately comes to mind to play for me in college. He was a terrific attacking player. He played outside back for us on the right side, but he was a terrific attacking player. So I added to his his function, his job description, to go forward when we had the ball strong side or if we had the ball on the weak side. So I added that to his function. Now you can do that once again with the players that you have on your team. Now, how does that translate into system? Well, this is the broader conversation that I'm going to try to encapsulate here very, very briefly in this short segment here on Coach's Corner. Well, essentially, your, your, your system is how you play the game. How you play the game in attack. How you play the game defending. How you play the game, the, tran- the two transitional moments when you've lost the ball and your team has won the ball. How do we play uh, You know, when we're defending in the defensive third? What do we do defending in the mid-third? What do we do defending in the attacking third? Are we pressing? How do we play coming out of the back? What is our attacking philosophy through the midfield? What are we looking to do when we get into the attacking third? Uh, when we lose the ball, what, what, how does our shape change when, when we lose the ball? Counterpressing. Do we counterpress uh, try to get the ball back in a certain number of passes, or is it a time frame? Do we just want to press the ball and have the, re- have, have the remaining players behind the, the the pressing player to organize to create compactness? Does our form does our does our system change when we're down one nothing with six or seven minutes left to go in the game? Does our system change when we're away? Does our system change when we're playing on grass versus turf? Does our system change when it's raining out? It's a muddy field, it's a small field It's a large field. There are so many dynamics that contribute to a team's system of play. My advice to coaches out there for advanced players is have, have a fundamental system that is your baseline, that's your basic that's your the basis of your team to play. And and you familiarize your players with this particular formation and system. And then you can you can offer variations relative on, on the things that I had I have just mentioned. Because they do impact games, they do impact situations. Uh, I know when I was coaching, we typically would play in a one full four, four two or one four one one. But if we were down in crunch time, you know uh, you know nine minutes or left, you know we would go into a three, four three and we'd press higher and we would be more risky going forward because heck, we needed a goal. We needed a goal. And we would train these things uh, in practice. We would train these things in practice. And that's super, super super important to replicate these types of uh, environments in training. So what I would do is I'd put on the scoreboard and I'd put the clock at say uh, you know 10 minutes. And click it and uh, you know that the team that i was coaching maybe the starting team for a particular saturday match i was training them and i say okay we're, we're down one nothing and they would play in the one four four two we're down one nothing and boom they would then you know uh, go into the one three four three or they press higher and you know, take more risk but we we would practice that and the great thing about doing that in training is that you could blow the whistle and make adjustments you know, uh, with the players, maybe weren't pressing high enough. Maybe we weren't making the field more, you know, compact enough, uh, you know, sideline to sideline. You know, maybe somebody was missing a mark in in terms of uh, who they should be pressuring uh, in that kind of scenario. So we would practice that. We would practice all those things, Uh, you know, game management, if you will. That way there, you know, when, when it was match day and we were in that situation for real, I didn't have to stand up and say anything. They knew, under these circumstances, we're down, it's crunch time, we need to change from a one-four four two to a one and change the way we play offensively and defensively. So there you go, ladies and gentlemen, I'll, I Just but the tip, the tip of the iceberg when it comes to formations, when it comes to systems, when we're talking about 11-a-side soccer. Uh, every player should know what their function is. Every player should know, you know, what, what their what their role or job description is individually. They should know by block. They should know by team. Uh, and all of that can be can be taken care of by you, the coach, the teacher of the game on the field. And might I add, maybe in a classroom session or bring out the whiteboard uh, and do have a little chalk talk with your players. So that's Coach's Corner here in the GP Soccer Podcast. I'm your host, Giovanni Pacini. We'll see you out in the field someday. This is Soccer News and Analysis with Giovanni Puccini. Monse Tome, the new coach of Spain's women's team, had to delay the announcement of her first squad after nearly all of the country's World Cup winning players maintained their boycott of the national team as part of their fight against sexism in soccer. The Federation said the players had rejected their attempts to return in time for the upcoming Nations League games against Sweden and Switzerland on September the 22nd and 26th. Despite the firing of women's national team coach George Vilda and the exit of the Federation President Luis Rubiales, 21 of the 23 World Cup winners and 18 other players issued a statement through the Futro Players Union explaining that, quote, the changes that have been made are not sufficient. The U.S. Soccer Federation is planning to build a national training center in Atlanta with $50 million in financial support from Arthur Blank, who owns the Atlanta Falcons and MLS's Atlanta United. Locally, the 17th annual Lois Wells Memorial Kicks for Cancer is scheduled for this Saturday at Concord Carlisle. The boys' schedule features nine games, including prominent matchups between St. John's Prep and Needham, kicking off at 10 a.m., Newton North and Brookline, kicking off at 2.30 p.m., and Concord, Carlisle, and Lincoln, Sudbury, a 7 p.m. kickoff. Tickets are $10 for adults and $5 for students. You can also donate at paypal.com slash US slash fundraiser slash charity slash 1739524. The proceeds go to Ovarian Cancer Research at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and $117,000 was raised last year. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I want to offer some, uh, a bit of news. It's kind of a little bit of old news, but nonetheless, it's still kind of fresh in our brain because it's been ongoing for a while. And that is the local, uh, debacle relative to the New England Revolution and the, uh, departure of head coach Bruce Arena. As we all know, uh, there was, uh, an investigation, an independent investigation that took place relative to, uh, uh comments uh that were made by uh by by bruce arena there was a a media session with team president brian bolello and technical director kurt analfo recently uh, and uh quote a difficult few days and weeks for our club and these are from president brian bolello uh they are in the past now best viewed as a little more than noise and baloney which were from kurt analfo and to be pushed aside in 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 favor of better days ahead. Quote, my side of the story is to make a very difficult situation into a great one. And we have that opportunity, Analfa said. That's where we're thriving on. Can we, through all this noise and the stuff that none of us asked for, drive forward and make something out of it? That's the message we're telling our players. They're an incredible group of human beings. He went on to say, I'll just tell you, watch out. They're incredibly unified. It's time to get out there and play. Stop talking about all the baloney. It is noise. We are focused on winning. Um, you know, in, in a nutshell here, uh, you know, that's a lot of fluff, a lot of, uh, you know, stuff uh, that doesn't address the issue at hand. There's been a, a cloak of secrecy, a cloak of, uh, you know, let's talk about something else uh, coming from the revolution. I don't know. Maybe their hands are tied uh, through the in, 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 uh, independent investigators. Maybe their hands are tied. Through major league soccer if that's the case then with detail uh, i think uh, president brian billello and technical director kurt analfa should say as such uh in the aftermath of all of this uh assistants shallory joseph and uh, dave vandenberg um, were dismissed and uh, revolution 2 coach clint pa was uh elevated to the uh, interim coach of of the revolution um so uh, brian billello went on to say uh he can empathize i can empathize with our fans i can empathize with our players uh, the league conducted an investigation. I have faith in the league, faith in the process, and I understand their need for confidentiality, protecting the subject, the witnesses, the reporters, and in terms of their investigation, I refer to refer people to that. Um, and essentially, this is you know in their eyes and their in uh, their assessment, uh, end of story, done, finished. Let's let's move on, uh, which has not gone well, by the way, uh, as we all know, uh, Bruce Arena. Uh, who was age 71, is uh, Major League Soccer's all-time winningest coach. He holds the league record for MLS Cup titles, five, uh, two with D.C. United and three with Los Angeles Galaxy, and guided the U.S. national team to two World Cups in 2002 and 2006 and to three Gold Cup titles in 2002, 2005, and 2017. So it remains to be seen if, A, the details uh, of this uh controversy this issue will rear its head or their head uh, in the upcoming days weeks months uh, if at all and it remains to be seen how the team does uh, react rebound uh, with with this controversy I, I sense that um, uh, this is not the end of all this despite uh, how much the the res would love for this to all go away I understand all that but I think uh, as time goes on there will start to have that whole drip 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 um, that will that will occur. And we'll get, uh, you know, we'll get to the bottom of all this. It's a, uh, you know, a rather disappointing ending if it is indeed the end for Bruce Arena in his coaching days. Uh, despite uh, all of the success that I had just noted, uh, the end, the the period uh, of of all of that will be the fact that uh, allegedly, allegedly, uh, he made some insensitive and inappropriate marks uh, that were worthy, so to speak. Uh, of an in-depth investigation, independent in- investigation uh, into said alleged uh, insensitive and inappropriate remarks. Again, as time goes on uh, with continued investigative work, the drip, drip, drip of uh, information that I foresee coming out, it's already kind of started, uh, we'll then see what, what, uh, what this is all about. But again, sadly, if this is how it ends for Coach Arena, uh, it is certainly a a, a, a sad situation uh, Period uh, on a sentence, if you will, to uh, uh, to use a phrase, so to speak, on what what has been an outstanding career. There is no question that he is arguably the uh, the best coach that this country has has produced. The uh, his record speaks for itself. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, the GP Soccer podcast, soccer news and analysis. Uh, and next up, the EPL your report with Rob Ellis. Welcome to the GP Soccer Podcast, English and European Football Roundup, with your host, Rob Ellis.
2: Hi everyone and greetings from London. This is Rob Ellis checking in with episode 3 of my European Soccer Roundup on the fantastic GP Soccer Podcast. As I record this week's edition, a weekend of domestic soccer is already well underway for all of England's 92 professional clubs, and as the goals hit the back of the net and the loyal fans either toast their victories or drown their sorrows, I'm here with you to bring you all the hot news from across the European soccer scene. In this week's episode, we're going to take a look at some of the brightest young talents that are likely to take centre stage for their clubs this season. We will browse europe's top leagues in search of the best young players and examine what it is about them that has already captured the imagination as any soccer fan will know many talented youngsters have failed to live up to early expectations and only briefly flickered before fizzling out amongst the seasoned and hardened professionals of elite level soccer and so there's no guarantee that the players i have selected will make the next step however their early performances and all-round attributes certainly give them a chance of becoming the next boy wonder. Our first young player to look at is Monaco's new signing, Follerin Balogun. After progressing through the youth ranks at Arsenal from the same era of players as their established young stars, including Bukayo Saka, Emil Smith-Rowe, Eddie Nketiah and Rhys Nelson, Balogun never seemingly earned the full trust of Mikel Arteta in the way that the aforementioned quartet did. Allegan only managed a handful of appearances for Arsenal, scoring twice along the way, and he endured a largely unsuccessful loan spell at Middlesbrough before finally exploding into life last season on loan at League 1 side Ream. He scored 21 goals in 38 appearances and weighed in with a host of impressive stats, particularly in relation to causing damage on the counter-attack and winning the ball back high up the pitch. Neither of these two statistics are particularly surprising as Balogun is a very athletic player that is well suited to fast counter-attacks and pressing the opposition backline. Balogun is most at home in the opposition's penalty area. Most of his goals are typical Predators' efforts and he's less suited to dropping deep to join in build-up play. Balogun's pace and power is likely to cause problems all season long for the French defenders. We're going to stay in France for our second young prospect. Bradley Barcola is a 21-year-old French under-21 international. He progressed through the ranks of his hometown club Lyon, making steady progress before emerging as a key component of Lyon's exciting attacking unit. Last season, he scored five and created nine goals in 26 appearances for Lyon, and was rewarded with a transfer to PSG, who are currently in the process of rebuilding with youth, rather than Galacticos. Barcola is an inside forward and is happy on the right or the left flank. He's right footed and loves to run with the ball and take on defenders. In full flow, Barcola is a graceful and instinctive dribbler who likes to entertain. He has a knack for drawing defenders in and then shifting the ball past them at the last second. Barcola can operate as a centre forward and at youth level is a goal threat. It's unlikely, however, that he will get many opportunities to operate as a number 9 for PSG, with Kylian Mbappé still at the club. However, if given opportunities on the flanks, he could be a name to watch out for this season. Our next young talent is the Paraguayan midfielder Julio Enciso. Unlike Balogun and Barcola, who sparkled for the majority of last season, Enciso is a player that has shown only glimpses of star quality, rather than prolonged periods of contributions. Enciso made 20 appearances in the Premier League for Brighton last season, but wasn't a regular starter until the final stages of the season, after his transfer from Libertad of the Paraguayan Primera Division. Enciso is very much a rookie and is still acclimatising to life in England, but his late-season form was enough to turn heads. He tormented Arsenal in a 3-0 win for Brighton that ultimately ended the Gunners' title challenge before scoring a belter against champions Manchester City. Nciso is an inside forward that is likely to turn into a number 10 as his confidence and physique develop. Enciso is a lovely player to watch in possession and can find pockets of space in tight areas. He's currently out injured but is likely to make a big impression once again for the Seagulls once he's fit. Antonio Silva of Benfica has all the attributes required to become a top-level central defender. The fact that Silva played 30 games for the Lisbon Giants last season in his first year as a professional speaks volumes of how he managed to stabilise Benfica's backline in the midst of an injury crisis. Standing at 6 foot 2 inches tall, powerfully built and with a no-nonsense short back and sides haircut, Silva looks every inch like a centre-back. He loves to defend, he's an outstanding 1v1 defender and enjoys muscling hapless opponents off the ball. Silva is outstanding in the air, is one of the best last-ditch tacklers and shot blockers across Europe. Silva is not blessed with outstanding pace, but what he does lack in pace, he makes up for in tactical nous and positional awareness. Already a full international and Champions League performer, watch out for Silva this season. And look out for Europe's biggest clubs when they start circling Benfica for his services very soon. Brighton fans will be delighted and excited in equal measures with my second Seagulls selection. Evan Ferguson is a young Irishman that is already getting rave reviews in the early stages of his life as a Premier League number 9. Ferguson looks like a player born to play at the top level. He's only been at Brighton two years, having made the jump up from playing in Ireland's top division for Bohemians to terrorising some of the best centre-backs in the world. And early similarities have already been drawn up with Harry Kane in terms of attitude and eye for goal. At first glance, much like Kane, Ferguson looks like the archetypal number nine. However, students of the game may also see the intelligence and all-round technical competence required to eventually play in a deeper role. Ferguson's development will not be rushed under the management of Roberto Di Zerbi and at only 18 years of age he has time on his side and seemingly a physique built to last. With four Premier League goals already to his name this season, it looks inevitable that his stock will once again rise. It almost feels too obvious to include Jude Bellingham in my search for fresh European talent. However, it's worth remembering that the lad from the West Midlands is only 20 and three years ago was just emerging in the championship with Birmingham City. After only 41 appearances, Bellingham was signed by Borussia Dortmund, who saw a generational talent marginally quicker than the other European big fish. If we were to design the ideal footballer, Bellingham would be the closest player currently imaginable to fit the bill. Technically, he's flawless with outrageous close control and range of passing, Tactically, he's wise beyond his years and able to operate as a number 4, 8 or 10. Physically, he has the build and power of a middleweight boxer and psychologically, he has the nastiness and composure to handle any situation. His settling in in period at Real Madrid seemed to last no more than a day and he's already the darling of the Bernabeu. Bellingham can be the player to watch for years to come and I fully expect him to be a future Ballon d'Or winner. Also, keep an eye out for Fabiano Parisi of Fiorentina this season. At the age of 22, he's not a rookie, but his progress over the last 12 months has been considerable. Parisi is a left-back that loves to drive forwards, and staggeringly, he completed 65 successful dribbles for Empoli last season. Only three other players in the whole of Serie A completed more. For those of you that keenly watch the men in green, Look no further than James Trafford of Manchester City as the pick of Europe's young goalkeepers. He may not feature much for Manchester City in the EPL this season, but do not be surprised to see him excel either on loan or at the Etihad Stadium in years to come. Trafford won the Under-21s European Championships with England last summer without conceding a goal. This feat alone is enough to make us all sit up and take notice. His temperament looks outstanding, his physical attributes also look outstanding. The Manchester City fans are very excited to have him on their books. An established number one, Edison, will already be looking over his shoulder at his new and emerging young rival. Well guys, that's it from me for this week. Make a note of the names discussed tonight throughout the season and keep your eyes out for their progress and let's see how they get on this year. As always, I hope I've entertained and informed you. So take care for now. Best wishes from London, and I will speak to you all next week. Take care for now.
0: Thanks very much to Rob Ellis for, uh, again, a terrific uh, uh, EPL and your report. You know, you know, I, I'm a fan of my own show, and, and I'll admit that. And my favorite part of, of my own show is, is that report uh, coming from... From Rob Ellis. Uh, he does a terrific job and it's such a welcome addition to our show. And so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a fan. I'm a fan. I'm a fan of Rob Ellis and those weekly reports. I hope you are too. Ladies and gentlemen, that's our show for today. Listen, if you like what you hear, please tell everyone. Remember, you can follow the GP Soccer Podcast all over social media and new episodes are available every Wednesday morning. If you've got a question that you'd like to have answered on Coach's Corner, well, email me at gp4soccer at yahoo.com. And that's the number four. I'm Giovanni Puccini, this is the GP Soccer Podcast, and I will catch you later.